our hearts now to the word of God. We pray you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and obey whatever you would say through Pastor John Mark. Uh, be gracious to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their town, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Last week, we got to spend some time thinking about that famous story that we usually read in December about the birth of Jesus when God, the creator, came among us in a new way as a human being. And today we've just heard about what happened right after that. Mary and Joseph take the newborn baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord as the the law of Moses required. And as they take Jesus to the temple... Um, that they offer, Luke tells us, a sacrifice of two birds. And that's worth pausing to note real quick, because if you go read the text Luke is quoting in Leviticus, what it actually says is, when this firstborn child is born and you come dedicate him to the Lord, you're supposed to bring the offering of a lamb. But if you're too poor and you don't have a lamb, then you can bring two birds. And Mary and Joseph bring two birds, which means... They are poor. I love the fact that throughout these early chapters of Luke, we're meeting characters who are very relatable. Mary and Joseph are just trying to make it. They're trying to live by faith. They're trying to honor God. And 
They live in what we would call today paycheck to paycheck. They're just trying to pay bills. And their life keeps getting interrupted by big forces outside of their control, which could be very disorienting and scary. And yet, as they're just trying to make it, God continues to be faithful and to take care of them. Can anybody relate to all of that? Mary and Joseph are struggling. They're trying to make it. They're trusting the Lord. And God keeps surprising Mary and Joseph with new signposts of grace. And that's what happens today. They think they're just going to come to the temple and bring a few birds and dedicate this child to the Lord. But when they get into the temple courts, they are quickly surprised as an old man named Simeon. We don't know if they knew Simeon. Probably they had never met him before. But he's an old man and he's a prophet. And he comes up to them and starts prophesying and saying all kinds of wild stuff, which we'll consider in a moment. And then the text says, as soon as Simeon is done... Another old person comes, an old woman who is a prophetess, and she comes and begins to speak about the child as well. And verse 33 tells us that Mary and Joseph marveled, just like we would do. There have been a lot of witnesses to Jesus already in these first couple chapters of Luke. The shepherds have borne witness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. The angel Gabriel has borne witness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Mary has borne witness to who Jesus is, Zechariah, Elizabeth. And now we meet these two new witnesses, Simeon and Anna. So today we're going to think about the witness of Simeon and Anna. We're going to think about what they have to teach us. These are two interesting people. They're both somewhat mysterious figures. We never hear of them in the Bible before or after this scene. Everything we know about Simeon and Anna is right here. We just heard it. We know that they are both godly. They've both lived their lives devoted to the Lord. We know that they're both old. We know that they're both role models of the spirituality of waiting in hope. Simeon and Anna are here to bear witness to Jesus, to tell us about who Jesus is, and to teach us how to wait in hope. It's a common biblical idea that we're supposed to learn how to wait for the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you type the phrase wait for the Lord into your favorite Bible app, you'll find dozens of verses talking about waiting for the Lord. Everybody say wait for the Lord. Now, this is the theme in this text. Verse 25, if you look at it in the middle of the verse, talks about Simeon is a man who has been waiting For the consolation of Israel. Talk more about that in a minute. Then verse 38 at the end of the verse says Anna is speaking to everyone who has been waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They are people who throughout their lives have been waiting in hope and they're speaking to a community of people who have been waiting in hope. Another way to say the same thing is that Simeon and Anna show us how to cling to the promise of God in faith. And settle for nothing less than the fulfillment of God's promise. And as we'll see as we continue reading, they teach us to cling to the promise of God in faith and to live with hope even in the midst of darkness and suffering. And they show us that waiting for the Lord, waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise, living with hope is a way of living that doesn't cause you to ignore Or try to suppress the truth of the world's brokenness and of the sin and the pain. 
But it is a way of life that allows you to live with comfort and with joy and with courage and creative action, even in the midst of the world's brokenness. So today we're going to learn a little bit about how to wait for the Lord. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. And as a matter of fact, if you want a title for the sermon, the title is Waiting for the Light. Because there's many metaphors, even in this passage, about what they've been waiting for. But I got encouraged this week looking at verse 32. We'll come back to it in a minute, but look at it right now. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's talking about Jesus. He's the light of the world. And these people have been waiting for the light as they walk through the darkness. Now, I want to pause right now before I go any more and ask you to join me in praying. Because I just... This week, as I've been meditating on this text, feel like we need the Holy Spirit to help us learn how to be a people of hope. Who know how to hold fast to the promises of God, even through long periods of adversity. So I want to ask you to bow your head with me and challenge you where you are right now in your heart. Would you say a prayer just asking the Holy Spirit to help us this morning? And I'm going to say a prayer for us before we dive further into this text. Holy Spirit of the living God, we ask for your help right now. Would you come open our eyes to see Jesus? Would you open our hearts to trust Jesus? Would you lead us to Jesus in faith? And would you do a work in our souls that we would be the sort of people like Simeon and like Anna who hold on to the promises of God and hope steadfastly in Jesus, living with joy and with creative love through all the seasons of life? Lord, I can't do that work. We need your Holy Spirit. And we ask for you now, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's look with a little more detail, first at Simeon and then at Anna. Verse 25 describes Simeon to us like this. He's a righteous man and he's devout. So this means he's a man of prayer. He's a man who reads his Bible. He's a man who tries to obey the commandments of God. He's a man who tries to love his neighbors, to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And then we come back to this phrase that we've mentioned, waiting For the consolation of Israel, or you could translate that waiting for the restoration of Israel. These are both ways of saying, as Simeon has been reading his Bible, he's been reading a lot of promises of God. That God is going to send a savior, a Messiah, the Christ, who will be a king from the line of David. And he will come with mercy and he will come with love and justice and wisdom. He's going to bring forgiveness of sins for God's people. He's going to bring hope for all the nations of the earth. When he comes, he's going to usher in a new era of peace and righteousness in the world. And he's believed that promise of God, even though it's been many, many centuries since the promises were first made. He's holding on to the promise. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's not just talking about something Simeon is doing on this particular day of his life, his lifestyle is a lifestyle that is marked by waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is to say his whole life is marked by hope. He's a person who has meditated on the promises of God. And his whole life is oriented towards those promises. And then verse 25 tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, I would encourage you to underline those two words, Holy Spirit. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've told you several times already, Luke wants us to notice that the Holy Spirit of God is always at work in the world. Throughout the book of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, Luke is constantly talking about the Holy Spirit. So we need to notice that the Holy Spirit was at the work, was at work in this story and that the Holy Spirit is at work in our midst today. Everybody say the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was mentioned four times in Luke chapter one. And now in three verses, he's mentioned three more times, seven times already in two chapters. Let's let's look at the three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. I just mentioned one of them at the end of verse 25 says, and the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And then it says, and it had been revealed to him, that is to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So there's a second time the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon. Here's another promise. This is not a scriptural promise, but the Holy Spirit has just told Simeon, hey, Simeon, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. It's a scriptural promise for us. For him, it wasn't written down. It's just something the Holy Spirit showed him. And then in verse 26, it says, and uh, sorry, verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. He came in the spirit in the spirit. What does that mean? It means. In general, Simeon lived a life that was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in particular, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon, you're going to see the Savior before you die. And then in particular, on this day, the Holy Spirit was prompting Simeon and bringing him to the temple for a special purpose. And we should notice here what the Holy Spirit is doing. Okay, when the Holy Spirit shows up, we need to remember who he is and what he's doing. The answer to the question who he is is that he's God, okay? We'll remind ourselves of this a lot, and we'll, we'll try to make it plain like we do to the kids when we're teaching Bible study during the week. Everybody hold up one finger. Just pretend you're a child. It'll help for a second. Everybody say, there's only one God. But then we have the kids hold up three fingers and say, three persons in God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the, the word for that, the theology word, is the word Trinity. Three persons in God. What does it mean? It means a lot of things. It means God is love. It means God has always existed as a loving fellowship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It means when we trust in Jesus and we come to have a relationship with God, we're entering into an experience of loving fellowship that has been going on for all eternity. We're sharing in the very life of God, which is love. And that's who the Holy Spirit is. But if we ask, what is he doing? Here we're going to see the Holy Spirit is doing a few things, which he does throughout Luke and Acts and throughout the whole New Testament. The Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to Simeon and then leading Simeon to Jesus and then prompting Simeon to talk about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. He does other stuff, too. But he always reveals Jesus to us and then leads us to Jesus and then frees us to live lives that bear witness to Jesus. So if you want to know who Jesus is, I would just encourage you right now in your heart, pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead me to the presence of Jesus. Holy Spirit, help me to bear witness to Jesus in my life. I also want you to notice the connection here, both with Simeon and with Anna, between the Holy Spirit and this theme of waiting, this theme of patient hope. I was struck this week as I read this passage a bunch of times by the juxtaposition of these two phrases from verse 25 describing Simeon. 
What kind of guy is he? He's a guy who is waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The reason I was struck by this is because as you read through the book of Luke and the book of Acts, often when you read about the Holy Spirit, he's doing something surprising. He's doing something dynamic. He's doing miracles. He's causing thousands of people to get saved in one day. He's making people speak in tongues and prophesy and healing people. He's doing exciting things that get our attention. It's like he's setting off spiritual fireworks to show us, hey, God's doing something new. Pay attention. He's moving fast. Okay? But what this text reminds us is that the Holy Spirit can move slow also. The Holy Spirit doesn't just move fast. The Holy Spirit can also move slow. If the Holy Spirit sometimes sets off fireworks and pyrotechnics to get our attention, he can also do the work he's been doing in Simeon's heart, which is much more like stirring up some hot, hot coals in his soul that will keep burning over the course of decades, but that might burst out in flame at any given moment. It's a slow and patient work. And I would submit to us today that I like revival. Wouldn't it be fun if... Next week we came and there was a thousand people in here and everybody got saved because the Holy Spirit did something crazy. Okay, I like revival. I like the fast work of the Holy Spirit. But as I was thinking about it, if I had to choose between only experiencing a fast work of the Holy Spirit or only experiencing the slow, the slow would be better. All that fast work is designed to get us to be people who over the course of decades learn how to live lives of faith, hope and love. And I've known a lot of people who experienced seasons of tremendous revival and miracles and then later their faith grew cold and they didn't finish well. I've also known some people who never experienced those fireworks and yet they finished their life uh, walking with God. And that was a capstone of decades. So but I want both. I want all of the Holy Spirit all the time is what I want. But what I'm trying to say is if we get this idea that the Holy Spirit only does fast, exciting, unpredictable stuff, we may be missing the fact that the Holy Spirit is always, always, always at work. Opening our eyes to Jesus, leading us to the presence of Jesus, stirring up our hearts to bear witness to Jesus, and teaching us to be people who cling to the promises of God, wait for the Lord, and live by hope. Like Simeon. Now, Simeon comes up to them in the temple courts, and then... He starts to talk. His words here are empowered by the Holy Spirit. He prophesies. And I want to take a few moments to listen closely to what Simeon says. So if you could look back in your Bible or on the screen or in your bulletin, let's read this portion again. Let's start in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up. In his arms and blessed God. By the way, you can circle that little word took. You can't see it in English, but in Greek, that is a variation of the same word for waiting. And both words have the connotation of receiving. And the Greek wordplay is this. He has been waiting. He has been waiting for many years to receive the Messiah. And now he's coming and physically with his arms, receiving God's salvation, taking him into his arms. And then listen to what Simeon says. Lord. You are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, the old man Simeon says, I can die now. I'm coming to heaven because I've seen your Messiah. 
That's what I was waiting for. I know your salvation is on the move. And then verse 30, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That's a beautiful phrase. What does it mean? It means if you look at this baby Jesus, you are seeing God's salvation. God's salvation has a face. It's the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to experience God freeing you from sin, look at Jesus. If you want to experience God freeing you from the power of death, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it's like to have a deep relationship with God, keep looking at Jesus. If you look at the face of Jesus, you experience God's salvation. You see it. And then verse 32 says a light. And this light does two things. Jesus is the light of God for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, let's think about that word light for a second. Everybody say light. Light is a common metaphor in the Bible, a common symbol. Light means truth as opposed to the darkness of ignorance and lies. Aren't there a lot of lies in the world? Anybody besides me have lies that show up in your own head sometimes? Even if you finally turn off the news and social media, you just sit there and it still keeps going. Your head keeps tweeting lies, right? It's darkness. But light is the truth of God in the midst of the lies. Darkness and light can also be about light is the joy of God as opposed to the darkness of sorrow, despair. In Scripture, light can represent the holiness, the goodness of God. As opposed to the darkness of evil. Light is associated with life. In a culture of death. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Says John 1 verse 4. The light is the life of God shining into a culture of death. Jesus is God's truth. He's God's joy. He's God's holiness. He's God's goodness. He's God's life. Breaking into a dark world. And he comes to bring glory to the people, Israel. Simeon is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. God made promises to his people, Israel. But it's noteworthy that when Simeon, at the end of his life, starts channeling the prophet Isaiah and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, before he mentions his own people, he says, God has shown a light of revelation to all nations. What does that mean? It means I'm excited to go to heaven now because I know not only is God going to rescue and restore my people, but every ethnic group on the planet is going to know God because of this baby. That's what he's saying. Every culture, every language. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have been you have prepared in the light of all peoples, all peoples, every ethnic group, every culture. That's why. Church family, we send people to the nations. We've got people from our church that are serving in North Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe. We've got several people right now that are seriously considering going to the nations, moving to another country in the next couple of years to join in that mission work to take the gospel to every ethnic group. That's why we as a church are trying to figure out how do we keep adjusting and learning and being flexible so we can reach into every pocket of our community and reach every ethnic group. Southside is a diverse place. There's a lot of different ethnicities here. That's why we're trying to figure out how to do bilingual church together. We're doing all of this not because we think it's cool or because it's trendy, but because from the creation of the world, God has had a plan to bring salvation to every ethnic group on the planet. 
And when it says Jesus is the light of revelation to the Gentiles, what is he revealing? He's revealing the heart of God. He's revealing the heart of God. I know that we live in a culture right now that tends to have a very relativistic view towards any issues of truth. And often um, people in our culture tend to think if you try to convert one person from one religion to another, you're actually oppressing somebody and destroying their beautiful culture. As a matter of fact, I've seen recent survey data of Christians who are young in America, even if they believe Jesus is the son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, many of them still think it's wrong to try and convince somebody from another background of that. I'm sure there's some people in this room that think that way just because we think, hey, who am I to think I have uh, a corner on the truth? Hey, listen, what we're trying to say is not that you have a corner on the truth. What we're trying to say is that Jesus has the truth. Jesus is the truth. And if you're wrestling with this, I don't want to condemn you or shame you, but I do want to reason with you. And I want to tell you, um, I, I have been to different parts of the world and I've talked to people from different parts of the world, from different religious backgrounds, and I've read lots of their books. And Do you know who doesn't say it's oppressive to tell people about Jesus if they're from a different religious background? I'll tell you, people from a different religious background that just believe in Jesus. What they say is, I'm so glad somebody told me the truth because I was living in the darkness and Jesus shone into my life like a light. He brought forgiveness. He brought healing. He brought peace. Is that what he's done for you? Yes. So we can be humble and we can recognize, hey, we've got just as much to learn from one another and even from people from other religious backgrounds as we have to teach. But we can be real clear. The light of the world has a name. And what's his name? His name is Jesus. After saying this remarkable thing about Jesus, who came to die on the cross for our sins and rise again so we could all know God and be forgiven, Simeon then turns to his his parents. By the way, you'll notice verse 33, little side note, says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, Luke had gone out of his way to make the point that Jesus was born of the virgin, that his conception was miraculous. So Joseph is not his biological father, but Joseph is now basically doing what an adoptive father does, which is raising, or as a, what a stepdad might do, raising Jesus as his own son. And if you have any questions about this, just come back next week when you'll hear Pastor Jared preaching to us about Jesus in the temple saying, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house because Jesus knew who his real daddy was, right? But Joseph is raising Jesus as his own son, and Luke is acknowledging that. Mary and Joseph, the father and mother, marvel. They're amazed. And then... Verse 34 says, and Simeon blessed them. It seems to be that he said a blessing to both of them that is not recorded here. But then it says, and said to Mary, his mother. And then what we get is what Simeon said to Mary. So he's focusing specifically on her. And friends, this is a strange blessing. It's a strange blessing. Simeon says, behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising Of many in Israel. See that verse 34? He's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. A sign that is opposed? The fall of many in Israel? What does this mean? Well, there's a lot that we could say about this. But lately as I've been studying the scriptures, a little phrase that I feel like summarizes what so many texts of scripture like this one are, are getting at is this little phrase, disruptive peacemaking. 
Jesus is a disruptive peacemaker. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. The, the Bible consistently connects Jesus with the advent of God's peace on earth. We already heard it in Luke chapter 2, verse 14 last week. Remember, when Jesus is born, the angels show up singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Everybody say peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet had foretold that the Messiah would be called Prince of Peace. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. In Colossians, Paul says he made peace by the blood of his cross. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus is the great peacemaker. And yet, if you've got your Bible, I invite you to flip real quick to Matthew chapter 10 and read what it says. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34, Jesus is talking and he says something that will sound strange in the light of everything we've just said. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now we're already confused, right? Then why did you send angels to sing peace when you were born? Why did you tell Paul to call you the peace of God? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait, I thought you were life in the midst of the world's death. I'm confused. Verse 35 says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Very strange, because family reconciliation is very much on the heart of God. Back in chapter 1, we read that John the Baptist was coming to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Verse 36, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's a strange saying of Jesus. Jesus sometimes provokes us. And, and the, how do those two things fit together? I'm just going to proffer to you what I think the answer is to this and ask you to meditate on it. And the Holy Spirit can keep being your teacher as you think about this this week. If you look at the tension in sayings like this throughout your New Testament, what you'll see is that God has come to bring real peace. But bringing God's real peace often requires first disrupting a false peace. We could think about this at our individual level. You might be comfortable living in sin and foolishness and selfishness. And if you are, the first thing Jesus is going to do is to come expose you to truth and righteousness and grace in a way that makes you uncomfortable. And that seems to call for a radical reorientation of your life, a sign that is opposed to the way you're living right now. He might disrupt your false peace But he's doing it in order to call you into repentance, which is opening up your soul for the possibility of really living for the first time so you can experience the true peace of God. He does this in families. He does this in churches. Sometimes families like to keep secrets. As long as we keep secrets, we'll keep the peace. We'll bury it. We don't talk about Bruno, right? And uh, we're going to bury that secret and everything's going to be fine, except for Bruno is living behind the wall. If you don't have kids, you know what I'm talking about. It's a movie. Okay. Um, you can't hide Bruno forever. Just go watch Encanto. Um, sometimes he does this in families. And it's funny, maybe, when I'm talking about Encanto right now, but if it happens in your family, it's not funny, is it? Because that buried secret can fester and create a lot of pain. And sometimes the light of Jesus looks like division and disruption and a sword in order to bring the possibility of the first experience of true peace. Sometimes it happens 
at the level of cultures and nations. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I started studying all these 20th century peacemakers and peace activists and civil rights leaders. And one of the things that I found over and over is the people that we now recognize as the great peacemakers of the 20th century were without exception all labeled as divisive during their lifetimes. Because they came talking about the love of God, loving their enemies. They didn't come shaming people. They weren't part of whatever, call out, cancel culture. But they came speaking the truth and love in a way that called people to repentance. They said, we're about forgiveness and reconciliation and healing. But there's no real healing and reconciliation unless we challenge injustice and oppression. They were often labeled as divisive because they disrupted the false peace. And what... Simeon is saying here to Mary is the baby in your arms is bringing the life and peace of salvation and salvation of God into the world. And for that reason, the world will experience him as a sign that is opposed. And everybody that wants to repent and experience God's life is going to rise from the ashes. And everybody that wants to reject the authority of God and continue walking in the darkness is going to fall. He says... In the next verse, the end of the verse, 35, the last half of the verse, many hearts will be revealed. You see, the way we respond to Jesus tells us a lot about the true condition of our hearts. A lot of a lot of people in the Gospels and a lot of people in the world today will go with Jesus so far. But I I had a mentor explain it to me like this once. That often we say Jesus is Lord, but also we think that we're the Lord. And those two claims in our hearts, we might only say the first one out loud. But they're both, both of those ideas are in our hearts. And they may be going like trains on parallel tracks. But then God does a thing where the tracks cross. And it can only be one after that. Either I'm Lord or Jesus is Lord. It can't be both. And there's going to be a point where something about what Jesus says about forgiveness Or something about what he says about repentance, going to tell the truth, reconciliation, something Jesus says about sexuality, something Jesus says about um, how to love our enemies or love our neighbors is going to rub us the wrong way and it's going to reveal the condition of our hearts. And it's true that encountering Jesus shows us a lot about the condition of our hearts, but there's something else that's true. If you meet Jesus... And what you learn about your heart is discouraging. That's also a part of the salvation process. Because Jesus is the great physician. He's the soul doctor. Okay, he's the healer. And the first job of a good doctor, Reed, is to do what? You're not going to say. I won't know. I will. will think you got it right no matter what you say, because you're a doctor. Okay, a good diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis. If you said bedside manner, that wouldn't have worked with my sermon, so I'm glad. <laughs> a winning smile. That's why we all love Dr. Reed. The first, the first responsibility of that doctor is to diagnose the problem. I can't give you the right medicine. I can't give you the right healing if we haven't accurately diagnosed the problem. And Jesus said, doctors don't come for healthy people. They came for sick people. And I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Which means when we encounter Jesus, he's like a mirror that's going to show us some things about ourselves. And sometimes what we learn about ourselves is not going to be encouraging. But even if what we learn is that our souls are sick, then the very next thing that happens is that Jesus says, that's why I came to heal you. 
I came to bring you forgiveness. I came to bring you love. And then there's this other little phrase in parentheses at the beginning of verse 35 that we have to reckon with. And this is directed by Simeon in a very personal way to Mary. Look at what he says. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. This is the first moment where, in a very direct and explicit way, the shadow of the cross is hanging over Luke's gospel. But before verse 34, we hadn't really heard anything about the pain and the tumult that's going to be involved in God bringing healing to the world. But now we're starting to hear that God's salvation is going to be about cross and resurrection. The Son of God is going to defeat evil, not by defeating all of our enemies, but by defeating the darkness in us. The Son of God is going to go to the cross where he will bear all of my sin and all of your sin, all of my evil and all of its consequences and die in my place, condemned by wicked, lawless men, according to the foreknowledge and the purpose of God. God himself will bear all of our pain, all of your evil, all of your shame, so that you don't have to. He's going to die on the cross and rise again so that you and I can be saved. And that moment of witnessing the crucifixion, I mean, that's something we read about from 2,000 years ago, but it's something that his friends and his mom watched happen. A sword is going to pierce your own heart also. Being the mother of the Son of God is going to be, it is a beautiful, a blessed vocation. Blessed are you among women, Mary. And yet it's going to be a very painful vocation. But as we read this in the light of everything that's in Luke's gospel, what we can see here is a tender word spoken. Mother Mary, your grief is going to be your salvation. Because the most painful moment of your life is, is literally going to be the God of the universe bearing all of your sorrow so that he can carry it away and make you joyful forever. Jesus is the savior of Mary as well as our savior. Now, all of this stuff that Luke and that Simeon has been saying makes us pause and think. If we're going to learn to wait for the Lord and live by hope, which is our goal today. It means that sometimes we're going to have to learn how to cling to the promises of God when it feels like a sword is piercing our soul. Living by hope sometimes means declaring God is my salvation, even if you don't feel it. And even if you're walking through great suffering. So if you're here right now and you feel like a sword has pierced your soul. The word of the gospel is this. God loves you. God has come to you to be with you in your pain and remember the promise of God. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Grace will get the last word. God will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, this very serious note in Luke's gospel is going to cause us to have to go deeper into some of the gospel realities we were talking about last week. Because last week we read about the birth of Jesus. When I was talking about the birth of Jesus, I said to you 
a lot of different times in a lot of different ways. Because the Lord God of Israel has visited his people, it's going to be okay. Everybody remember that? Everybody say, it's going to be okay. And it's going to be more than okay. The birth of Jesus means God will win in the universe. The birth of Jesus can't be separated from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It means goodness will triumph in the in the universe. But when we say it's going to be okay, we need to be clear that we're thinking biblically about what that means. The Bible authorizes and even requires us to confess it's going to be okay and it's going to be more than okay because of texts like this one. If you got your Bible, just flip to the end of the book. Let's read where this story is going. I'm going to read to you Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. What do I mean when I say the birth of Jesus means that everything is going to be okay? I mean that he came to die for our sins and rise again and send the Holy Spirit and then come back in glory to make all things new. If you want to see the end result of Christmas, go look at Revelation chapter 21. And it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And he will himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Amen. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is going to make it all okay. If you're in the middle of grief and you feel like a sword is piercing your soul right now, this is an amazing text. It's saying the ultimate meaning of Christmas is that God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. God himself will heal your soul. I thought this week, as I thought about this of... A woman who lived about 700 years ago, her name was Julian. She's known as Julian of Norwich. And she had a a profound spiritual experience in the midst of great suffering. And she was praying and really wrestling with God in prayer. And she she wrote the story, the account of her experiences with God, which happens to be like the first Christian theological text in the English language, if you're interested. And... There's a moment in which he's saying to Jesus, but why does there have to be sin? Why does there have to be so much evil? Why are you allowing it to all happen? And she has this deep experience in which she experiences Christ not answering her questions. But saying these sins that you're so upset about, this evil, some of these things were necessary in ways that you don't understand. But then he said this, and this is what matters. He said to Julian, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Everything's going to be okay. He's saying, Julian, if you keep trusting me, I will walk with you through the pain. And when I'm done walking with you, you yourself will look back and say it was worth it and everything's okay, And you are glorious, Jesus. That's what you will confess. The way Jesus says it is by saying things like this. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Jesus also says things like this in Luke chapter 21, verses 16 through 18. He's warning his apostles that they're going to be persecuted. A sword's going to pierce their soul also. And he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Think about that. They're going to kill some of you, but not a head of your hair is going to perish. What is he saying? He's saying, whatever pains life can inflict on you are temporary, and then I'm going to heal everything. And you're going to live with me forever. This is the witness of Simeon, and it's kind of heavy, so I'm glad that Anna interrupted Simeon. And she runs up, and Anna's happy. So we just get to be happy for the rest of the sermon, y'all. A few more minutes. And Anna, at this moment, when Simeon is saying a sword is going to pierce your soul also, it says, immediately Anna came up. And Anna is fun. We don't know a lot about Anna. We know that her youth was marked by tragedy and disappointment because she got married. And after a mere seven years of marriage, her husband died. So she knows something about pain. And to be a widow in this society was a very vulnerable position. There weren't a lot of jobs for Anna, right? She's going to have to depend on others throughout her life. And she's, she's had a life that certainly would have been marked by a great deal of pain and struggle. Her youth was marked by tragedy and disappointment. But she had a vocation from God. And now she has spent a lot of decades uh, in a life as a prophetess committed to a, a lifestyle of ministry. And, and your text says she's 84 years old. Actually, the Greek is somewhat ambiguous. It might mean... She's 84 years old, in which case she's probably been a widow for about 60 years. Or it might be she's been a widow for 84 years, in which case she might be like 105. So either way, Anna is very old. And what it tells us about Anna is that now for many decades, she has been having a ministry as a prophetess, hanging around the temple, fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord. Don't you wish you could know more about Anna? Anybody want to be discipled by Anna? I would love to sit at her feet. We don't have a lot of time to spend with Anna today. But what we know is she spent her lifetime waiting and praying. And now she goes up and sees Jesus and she can't contain her joy. A lifestyle of fasting erupts in this culminating moment of gratitude. She pours out her heart in praise to God. By the way. Have you noticed, I told you when we started Luke's gospel, that there's going to be a lot of important women witnesses to Jesus. Have you noticed that? Mary has prophesied about Jesus. Elizabeth has prophesied about Jesus. Now here's Anna, the prophetess, prophesying about Jesus. Sisters, we need you. Brothers, would you help me out? Turn to the sisters and say, we need you. The body of Christ can't fulfill its calling without all of us. And if any of us have heard a, a version of biblical teaching that says women just remain silent, it didn't come from the Bible, okay? Because in the Bible, the Holy Spirit keeps stirring up women to bear witness to Jesus. Anna is preaching. Anna's prophesying. Everybody's Anna's bearing witness. And not only is she expressing her gratitude towards God, but she's working as an evangelist, going around and teaching everybody who this baby is. Look at verse 38 quickly. It says, in coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him. To all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's a prophetess. She's a prayer warrior. She's an evangelist out 
telling everybody about Jesus. And I want to end today by coming back to this word waiting. It says Anna's talking to everybody who's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Everybody say waiting. Simeon and Anna are teaching us about waiting, teaching us about living with hope. Part of what they teach us is that to wait for the Lord is not passive. Simeon and Anna are not passive. They're righteous and devout. They're obeying God. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're testifying to God. They've been ministering. Waiting then means being faithful to the light that God has already given you while holding on to the hope that more light is coming. Waiting for the Lord means being faithful to the light that God has already given you while holding on to the hope that more light is coming. Would you like the Holy Spirit to make you a person like that? Hope that is rooted in the gospel gives us comfort and consolation. I need some of that pretty often. Anybody else? Let's testify. You need some consolation and comfort in your life. But we see from Anna and Simeon, it doesn't just give us comfort and consolation. It also gives us courage. It doesn't merely soothe us. It energizes us for a life of active, creative love. So the gospel is enabling us to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And even though a sword pierces my very soul, I will cling to the promise of God in steadfast hope. And I will keep on praying and I'll keep on serving and I'll keep on loving and I'll keep believing in the promise of God. And if the Lord wills it, I'll keep waiting like Anna and Simeon day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And even though I can't see all that God is doing, I'm believing that he is at work. And that the work he has begun in me and in the world will be carried on to completion. I am sure that the Holy Spirit is in this room right now at work. Making us a people of hope. And I want to partner with the Holy Spirit to say this to you, friends. If you are armed with a promise of God. Then the Holy Spirit can make you mighty even in the midst of great weakness. That's what we see from Anna and Simeon. I can't picture Anna standing up straight. She's got to be bent over by now, right? She's bent over in weakness. But if you're armed with the promise of God, the Holy Spirit can make you mighty even in the midst of great weakness. And I don't mean a promise of your own imagination. I mean, God said it, right? Like, here's something to try out for your life. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. There's a promise. Here's a promise. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will enjoy a feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's a promise. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will rise to reign with Jesus in the new creation. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he promises that all of your labor, all of your work and faith to love people is not in vain. Not one second of it will be wasted in ways we cannot see often. He will use it all for his glory so that 10,000 years from now or a million years from now, as we look back on our life, all of the struggling steps of faith and obedience that seemed wasted, we will see they had a, a purpose in the plan of God. And he used them all for his glory. If you're armed with a promise like that. From the scriptures, the Holy Spirit 
can make you mighty in the midst of weakness. And the story, uh, the picture I had in my mind is us being a people who live by hope. The light has come in Jesus, but we're still waiting for the light to come, right? Still a lot of darkness in the world. And part of what it means is we learn to be kind of like Anna and Simeon, even on a really dark, stormy, windy night. We're walking through the night holding up a lantern, which is the promise of God, and telling everybody the dawn is coming. The dawn is coming. That's what it means to live by hope. The sun will rise. And this kind of hope has a transforming effect. If you don't believe me, go check out 1 John 3, 3. Whoever thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When you learn to wait for the light, you become light. That's what God is calling us to be. And in just a moment, we're going to start singing out to God. Because some gospel truths are just so good. You can't just go have lunch so you sung one more song. Amen. We need to sing to God. But first, I want to give you a moment to just talk to God. Let's just have a quiet second with the Lord. Our text has taught us that the Holy Spirit is at work, opening our eyes to see Jesus, leading us to the presence of Jesus. Teaching us to wait, to trust the promises of God and empowering us to bear witness to Jesus. Would you just pray right now that the Holy Spirit is going to, in a special way, open your heart to see Jesus and believe his promise and speak to you? I don't know what he wants to do in your life, but I believe he's active in this room. Just pray that God will speak to you. Worship team's about to lead us in a song, but I just want to say, if, if God is tugging on your heart, even if you don't know why, um, one of the things that the Holy Spirit uses is other people. And God may want to use a friend or a loved one or a family member or one of our pastors today. If the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart to come to Jesus in a new way, whether it's for the first time to commit your life to Christ or to receive new hope, in the midst of difficulty, just want to urge you, before you leave this place today, come talk to somebody that can pray with you and help you on that journey. Would you stand now as we get ready to sing, and I'm going to say a prayer for you. Father, you know the needs of every heart in this room. And I do not. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would move. And as we're praying right now, I actually want to invite Chauncey and Jared to come up here. Would y'all stand this way, facing that way, so it's awkward for you and not for the people that are coming to you. And uh, in this last song, if you want somebody to pray for you, maybe you're wanting to come to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you've been walking with God for a lot of years like Anna and Simeon, but you need someone just to pray for a renewal of hope today. Would you come up here and ask one of these guys to pray with you and uh, not leave before you let them minister to you in that way? Father, I pray again for this group. As we sing, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to trust Jesus. I pray that um, you would move with power in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.